We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time. It's time. for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps. And I'm joined in the studio this evening by Sean Su. It's great to be back. And from Taijong by Donovan Smith. And great to be here. And we'll begin this election aftermath episode with the first casualty of the election's outcome, that being Taiwan's formal ties with the Pacific Island nation of Nauru. Nauru announced the severance of diplomatic ties with Taiwan on Monday. And the Ministry of Foreign Affairs later that same day accused China of plotting to poach Nauru two days after Taiwan's presidential election as part of a calculated assault on democracy. Now, Deputy Foreign Minister Tian Zhong Guang slammed the severance of ties with Nauru, describing it as a despicable act by China and a challenge to international norms. Tian also said that Nauru sent a letter of congratulations to Lai Qingde after his election victory on Saturday, which Tian said made the timing of the switch rather a surprise. Now, reports say Nauru had asked Taiwan for around 83 million US dollars to keep an immigration detention facility going, but switched diplomatic recognition to China before the government could respond to that request. Now, sources are being cited as saying the government could not afford that sum of money requested by the island, and officials also believe it would have been a waste of taxpayers' money. Now, it was the 10th diplomatic ally that Taiwan has lost to Beijing since President Tsai Ing-wen took office in May of 2016. So, Sean, there's been lots of questions about whether Taiwan needs diplomatic allies per se, but this one, the timing of this one, Sean, obviously questions have been raised about that. I've we I feel like we need a bingo card, right? Where, you know, what happens after a democratic election or, you know, in Taiwan and I think this is one of them, especially if it doesn't go like Beijing's way. I just wanted to point out that, uh, you know, China had successfully basically lured away several allies, uh, I think Sao Tome and Principe, um, you know, during the Ma administration and basically told them to hold off to see the outcome of the elections. Uh, these things happen every time, it seems like. And uh, every few years, like, we, uh, let's go for a rundown, right? Um, you know, Sao Tome and Principe, I mentioned, Burkina Faso and El Salvador, that was in 2018, 2019, Solomon Islands and Kiribati. You know, this has become something that I think most Taiwanese people have no longer, most don't care. Uh, I think there was a survey said that said that approximately only thirty six thirty two percent of respondents believe that losing democratic par- diplomatic partners will have a serious impact, negative impact on Taiwan. This means like you know two thirds are already like okay, what's the difference really? I mean the most. I hate to say this, but the most these nations have been able to do is, you know, come out occasionally and say that Taiwan needs participation in certain organizations. But generally, the United States and other bigger informal allies have been doing a much better job, sad to say. Um, but furthermore, there's another thing. Um, Nauru actually has switched diplomat uh, uh, recognition between Taiwan and China several times. 2002, they severed ties with Taiwan, and then 2005, they restored it again. You know, um, you know. I, I think that one of the biggest problems for a lot of these nations is to in Taiwan. We like we value our democratic way of life, and some of these nations. I'm not accusing Nauru, but I'm saying some of these nations are not exactly up to speed on that front and then they also require a lot of money and financial help which taiwan actually sorely needs for its own programs domestically so it now becomes a question of how important is it will anything really change if the remaining 12 allies recognize us or not and that question has been brought up again and again and the reality is i'm in the camp and i agree with the vast majority of taiwanese is that 
maybe it doesn't. Maybe some even say. Uh, it's not my position. Some even say that hey, if Taiwan loses all recognition, that's the Republic of China that loses recognition, and it might be a convenient time for Taiwan to modify or do a name rectification or something like that. Um, I do think it's something that really helps China because every time they do this, they always China always demands new ally or, or new recognition, new new partner, diplomatic partner to say something negative about Taiwan, like you know we abide by the one China policy. That might be another thing on your bingo card. Um, but I need to point out something else that's even more important. Taiwan now has approximately 113 diplomatic missions around the world as of last month. 113, right? And that includes 92 semi-official representative offices that handle things that are typically handled by embassies that Taiwan does not have formal recognition, diplomatic recognition with. This means that you know things like TCROs, TECOs all around the world are basically our embassies, and they've been growing in numbers, not declining. And Taiwan has had much more impact economically around the world. So countries are like, okay, well, you know, China won't, we can't do dual recognition. China's going to throw a hissy fit. So we'll just work with the Taiwan Economic Office or something of like that, or representative office. And that's fine. I mean, for the most part, functionally, it's mostly the same. So that's basically how I see it. Yeah, well, I, I now you notice Sean snuck uh, a few comments in there that were actually quite radical, which I actually quite agree with. Um, but fundamentally, I mean, everything that Sean said was right. He summed it up, I think, in very neatly. But again, I mean, you know, to double down on what Sean said is really what we have is a situation where Taiwan has been deepening and doubling down on unofficial relations with countries that actually really matter. And if you actually look at the population of Nauru, which was in, I believe, is 2021, it was about 12,500 people. That, uh, if you took the Taipei Dome, you could actually fit uh, four times the population of Nauru into the Taipei Dome for a music concert. So, you know, I mean, this is not really a major power in the world. But the relations between uh, the United States and Japan and very important partners with Taiwan have been deepening and broadening and and this is very important and also militarily have been uh, increasing uh, quite a bit in in the last few years and you know so i i really don't think that the loss of nara really means very much what about the loss of other diplomatic allies of course some certain people have been very vocal about what sean was saying Taiwan doesn't need diplomatic allies. It just needs friends, basically. But, of course, when people say that, do you think they're offending the countries that are diplomatic allies with Taiwan? Well, yes, in in a sense. I mean, there, there are a few countries, I think, that actually genuinely actually believe in being a friend of, of Taiwan. And I think there are a few of those countries that don't. In other words, what I mean by this is that there are some countries that uh, you know they're you know they're they're diplomatic friends of Taiwan. I won't say allies because that comes with 
a whole lot of terminology which doesn't really apply, but formal diplomatic partners with Taiwan that do it because there's some money involved. There's some advantages involved, and there's and in recent years there's been some uh, you know advantages coming from the United States to these countries that do so. So you know they're 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 doing it for purely cold, calculating reasons. But there are a few countries, and and I think Eswatini is one of them, that does genuinely seem to believe that they cannot have good relations with the Chinese Communist Party and and view themselves in a proper light. It's it's kind of hard to explain, but they they believe that there's a fundamental moral reason. I think the Vatican also falls into this category where they can't quite bring themselves to accept that you know they can't accept not believing in the republic of china they have to they have to stand by it against the against the 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 chinese communist party and if they don't then you know they they're they're abrogating moral principles but countries like nauru and you know several others i think they they basically they're just in it for what's in what's in it for themselves. Yeah, I mean, it's it's not always that easy that uh, we have an ally that actually believes uh, in these principles, and you know, is saying that you know, hey, you know, like recently, Philip the Philippines had shot back at diplomatically at uh, China, saying that you know China's methods and whatever is incompatible with the Philippine way of life. There is some allies that actually believe that, but. Diplomatically speaking is one thing, but in actuality is another. Um, trade with China is very important around the world. I mean, they provide a lot of products that are, they assemble a lot of products and, and what have you that are rather inexpensive. But Taiwan is also the 22, 22nd largest economy in the world. So one thing that Taiwan, I think, can do is, of course, continue going on that track of developing its technologies, developing its industries, and making, forging strong partnerships with those around the world. And at the same time, uh, it means that those deepening relationships, for example, like Japan years ago saying that, you know, in the case of a, uh, a Chinese invasion, unsolicited Chinese invasion, they might, uh, uh, you know, uh, provide logistics for Taiwan. That's actually far more meaningful. Uh, that's something Nauru just could not provide. So these things are, like Donovan said, everything he said is correct as well, is that, you know, Taiwan needs to focus on the bigger picture. Uh, the, you know, having diplomatic relations is one thing. I mean, it would be highly ironic if, you know, some years or decades down the line, Taiwan has like four allies, uh, four dip- official diplomatic recognizers, and then China might say, that's why you can't change your name. <laughs> <laughs> And moving on now, President Tsai Ing-wen asked Premier Chen Jian-ren and his entire cabinet to remain in their posts until May the 20th in a caretaker role to ensure a smooth handover of political power. The request came after Chen and his cabinet submitted their resignations following Thursday's regular weekly meeting. Now, cabinet spokesman Lin Zhe-lun said the resignations were handed down in accordance with constitutional practices ahead of the newly elected lawmakers being seated on February the 1st. The move was in line, Lin said, with constitutional court 
Court Interpretation Number 387, which states the Premier should hence resign along with the full Cabinet before the first session of each new legislator. Now, according to the Premier, although the Cabinet is now in a caretaker period, he still hopes the team will keep working with the new legislature to push forward various policies for the benefit of the country and its people. However, the Cabinet's caretaker position has been slammed by the KMT, which says that as nearly 60% of voters rejected the DPP in last weekend's election, it's unnecessary that Chenley's Cabinet remain in their posts as it goes against public opinion, Sean. So, the Cabinet's going to stay on in a caretaker role, talk to the new legislature when it takes office on February the 1st in a caretaker role. But, I mean, the KMT, it goes against public opinion, screamed the KMT. Uh, I think uh, the KMT knows better than this. This is politics. I mean, you know, Jew is an accountant, so their chairman knows exactly what happens in a three-way race. Uh, in a three-way race, okay, there's very, very rare, it's, it, it very rarely ever happens around the world in all the democracies on the planet in a three-way race where somebody gets a plurality. And by plurality, that means over 50%. I mean, the implications, this is literally a talking point that actually the CCP immediately spread. And people online have literally said, I bet if Lai wins this election, the CCP is going to say they're illegitimate because they didn't get over 50% of the voting populace in a three-way election. It's incredibly hard to get over 50% in a three-way election. All right, that's the first thing. And then the second thing is, if you calculate the number of the available voting population, it would mean many presidents around the world in actual honest democracies are somehow illegitimate. Look, the point of the matter is, uh, and the KMT knows this as well, is that Lai won the majority of the voters that bothered to vote, and almost a million more votes than the KMT did. And the KMT also knows it was second place, and it was a whole seven points behind, again, in a three-way, and then about 13 points more than the TPP. Something to also keep in mind is they also like to make comparisons between Chen Sui-bian in 2000 and 2004, where Chen Sui-bian won approximately, what was it, 2.5% and 0.22% in a three-way. So therefore, trying to equate these things is, I think, disingenuous and bad faith. Uh, the math does not add up. So I guess the only controversy left is that this is the first time, uh, you know, the same party has won after you know the term has the term limited administration you know has ended the presidency usually it hands off so it's usually like dpp then kmt then dpp then kmt so eight years of dpp eight years of kmt eight years of dpp and then this is the first time the dpp managed to win a third time for the presidency so i guess we can argue about technicalities and say like okay well they have to technically announce their resignment uh because of uh, uh you know the the, the constitution policy because, uh, you know, uh, Constitutional Court Interpretation 387 that says the premier, though appointed by the president, is accountable to the legislator and therefore have to, has to resign, right? Uh, and with their full cabinet before the first session of each legislature. And it can be done. It's no problem. Now, Tsai has said for them to keep on their roles. It is possible Lai will keep some of them as well. So, you know, I think it's I think the KMT is trying to make this into a big thing, as they are apt to do as the opposition party, but I just don't really agree with their numbers. And Donovan. 
Yeah, I, 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 you know, I agree with Sean. I, and I can add a little bit to what he said. I, you know, constitutionally, there, there actually was, you know, at one point, a little bit more accountability from the executive branch to the legislative branch on accountability and to what, you know, to the degree they were expected to uh, present their, you know, their positions and and also they were, you know, they could be, uh, you know, they're appointing, they're appointing the members of the, exe- the executive branch, including the premier and, you know, um, and uh, heads of ministries, they could actually be voted on in the, you know, in, in the legislative UN. That, that was removed. So, you know, there's a little bit of, and this is what the TPP actually was uh, campaigning on. So the, the, the idea that there, there's more accountability from the executive UN to the legislative UN is something that has been brought to the fore by the TPP and to a lesser degree by the KMT. Now, the reality is, is that, you know, the, the president remains in power until uh, May 20th. And so, you know, changing the government now, between now and May 20th, it, it really doesn't make any, really any sense. They're going, they're kind of going through the motions because, you know, they, you know, they're following precedent. But at, at the end of the day, if you change all these people you know, right now, you're not going to get a great new beginning or anything like that because they're just going to be in power for a very short period of time. So it's not really advantageous to actually bother doing that. So they're just going through the motions. And Sean, Donovan mentioned certain parties, the TPP, have been asking for lawmakers to elect or vote on an OK, the Premier. I I think that, you know, the TPP is taking its position right now um, because it has eight seats in the legislature to try to, you know, throw its weight. Well, it's it's not its weight, but its position around uh, because it knows that it is the kingmaker of the legislative majority because nobody has a majority right now. You know, you need like 57 seats and uh, nobody has that. So I think that... Yeah, the TPP has to say something, and I feel I predict that throughout the in the next four years, the TPP will make noise as much as it can. It has to because it seeks to expand its seats. It seeks to have relevance. So any sort of legalese that will definitely come out and say like, "Yes, you should do this. We should elect. We should do." Yeah, yeah. yeah. But hmm, I, I think you know, again, uh, lies going to be in office in. May 20th. So therefore, he's going to call the shots and that's going to be that. But of course, the TPP has to chime up just to have some relevance. And Donovan, what do you think about the idea of lawmakers having a say in who the premier is? Well, interesting. Constitutionally, that was actually originally the idea. Um, But, you know, it's been downplayed over time and the executive branch has increased the the power uh, again over time while the constitution has been amended and so what we're ended up what we've ended up with is a situation where the executive branch actually now has 
kind of an overweight power, and I do think the, the Taiwan People's Party kind of has a point on this. Now, the KMT's position seems to be tagging along with the Taiwan People's Party uh, position on this, and, but they, they haven't really doubled down on it yet. Like, we're not really sure where they genuinely stand on it because they've been used to being a ruling party in the past and have taken advantage of exactly those benefits that that the executive branch has been given constitutionally by the revisions over the years. Now, whether or not the Taiwan People's Party can leverage their their balance power within the legislature um, while the other parties don't have a majority and to turn that into can they get the executive branch to back down constitutionally or re- re- revoke that or back, you know uh, undo those constitutional changes uh, you know, that of oversight by the legislature over the uh, executive branch, you know, it's hard to say. Um, I don't. I, I don't think they. Prob- I don't think they'll succeed. But I think they're going to try because it gets them some attention. It makes sure that the, there's attention focused on the party, and there may be very good reasons that this should be brought back where the legislative branch should have more oversight over the executive branch and constitutionally these powers should be restored but you know whether it actually happens or not is extremely unlikely because it's very hard to amend the constitution these days and President-elect Lai ching on Wednesday of this week announced he's no longer a member of the DPP's new Tide faction. Now, according to Lai, he chose to withdraw from the faction out of respect for the office of the president as he wants to govern objectively without partisanship. Now, he made the announcement during a meeting of the DPP's Central Standing Committee. A new Tide chief executive officer, Duan Yi Kung, said after that same meeting that Lai first discussed leaving the faction during his election campaign. Members of the new Tide faction they say they support Lai decision as the president should not identify with one single party faction and it's important that the head of state be seen as representing the whole country so donovan of course we're not living in the 1990s anymore so we could argue that these factions aren't quite what they used to be so do you think that his leaving the faction is going to make one iota of difference to what who he picks for certain jobs well no i don't i think fundamentally what it comes down to is several things now, when Tsai Ing-wen took power, what she did was she wasn't officially allied with any faction. And she changed the DPP, I think, fundamentally. Because all the, all the way through the 1990s, as you alluded to, and through the Chen administration, the DPP was riven with just absolutely brutal infighting between factions. And she... Uh, she set a standard where, you know, if you're X faction, you get X number of political positions. You get X number of important positions within the party. And she set a, a, a fixed formula which basically rendered them toothless. And the reason, and, and the way that she did this is because it was so formulated and so, you know, it was so 
they knew exactly what the result was going to be at the end of the day, they couldn't, there, there was no point in them causing trouble for the party. Because it did used to be that the factions got brutal and bloody and they, you know, they, it was all over the press. And, you know, but now, uh, you know, after her changes, there was no really point in doing this. So, you know, now lies stepping down from the New Tide faction. Well, you know, that I think is basically he is doubling down on tying one's reforms and trying to keep the, uh, you know, the, the old school uh, faction infighting down and, you know, trying to take a step up above it so that, you know, the, the size, I guess you could call it the Pax, the Pax Thai era can continue forward. So, Sean, of course, this story made the headline news on the China Times and the United Daily News. But, of course, it wasn't the lead story in the Liberty Times, which made me question, why were the two sort of KMT-leaning newspapers leading with this story, trying to make a big thing out of factionism, maybe? I think um, trying to... Uh, well, first of all, as everyone listening knows, that the China Times and um, you know United Daily News are more of like a pan blue uh, news media. They lean towards that, and of course, you know it's not so much big deal of the pan greens. Um, people changing and sort of shifting their loyalties for different factions um, in the DPP is actually quite normal. Uh, it's just more of a thing because this is a symbolic, I think, measure. Uh, Lai said he wanted more. Unity. In fact, people do talk about a lot about factions, especially when, um, like for example, his VP elect uh, Xiaobi Kim uh, also is part of uh, is associated with the New Tide faction as well. And so this is this is sort of like you know coming out and sending a message to DPP supporters, saying like, okay, you know, I'm you know I'm going to continue to be more centrist. I'm going to continue to follow more of like uh, the what Ing has done, so you can you know be relaxed and calm down and try to get unity because right now one of the most important things for Lai to do is make sure that the DPP is on the same page to minimize any potential infighting as people vie for positions of power and potentially the new cabinet among other positions. So I feel like Pan Blue Media trying to talk this up a little bit to make it seem like it's a drama- it's dramatic. Uh, they might even paint this as, okay, look, uh, Lai is forced to change positions or he's forced to do this or he has to do this in order to you know, get his cabinet together. It is an easy way to try to paint things as a little bit more chaotic than it really is. Um, you know, it could have just been simply lie making a speech saying that, okay, everyone needs to come together and we're going to have to, you know, fight a legislature, which we do not have a majority with. And that's going to be, uh, and that means I need everyone on the same page. It could have been something rather similar as well. So, I mean, uh, another thing that we also need to point out is that uh, lie prior to running for presidency was seemed uh, quite a bit more uh deeper green and a little bit more radical than tying one was so since his campaign's message has been i'm going to give you more of the same now is not necessarily a bad time to do it had he quit the new has he had he quit the the faction um earlier during the presidency during the campaigning period then i think it would have been more significant um but he obviously didn't do that so you know that's there you have it 
And looking at another party now, that being the KMT, which held its first post-election central standing committee meeting on Wednesday, after which party chairman Eric Dew said he would not resign from the party leadership despite the results of the presidential election. Now, Dew said while he will shoulder all responsibilities and endure humiliations related to the presidential election, he will remain at his post until the end of his term, which happens to be in October of next year. Now, Dew today, as we're recording this show, is embarking on a tour of the island's cities and counties with Hoyoe and KMT lawmakers, where he says they will talk to grassroots supporters to get local feedback on party reforms. Now, Dew's statements came despite repeated calls for him to step down from within the party. And one such party member was Jung Ya Jong, who has in recent years sought to be the KMT's presidential candidate and the party chairman. Now, he told reporters on Tuesday that Eric Dew should not only step down to take responsibility, but also make way for those who can institute reforms. Jung accused Ju of turning his back on the democratic process and letting down the public with his refusal to resign. And he slammed him for bypassing the party's presidential primary to nominate a candidate who was not the best representative in terms of political readiness, personal charisma and experience. So, Donovan, Eric Ju is not stepping down. Yeah, uh, and here's the thing, though. I mean, traditionally, the KMT party chair does step down after a major electoral defeat. But here's the thing. Has the KMT actually faced a major electoral defeat? And I think he has a case to say that after the local elections where the DPP suffered a their worst defeat in their entire history... And the KMT, you know, won the plurality within the legislature, you know, but they did lose the presidential race. So, you know, I think Eric Jew has a case to say, you know, we've done fairly well. We didn't exactly get everything. It wasn't a sweep, uh, but he has something of a case. Now, of course, his opponents will say that, you know, we lost the presidency and that's the big prize and they're focused entirely on this and, you know, therefore you have to step down. Now, you know, so, you know, this really kind of comes down to internal KMT politics. But what I really actually think is going on here is that Eric Jew has been trying to reform the KMT from within, and he's been trying to make sure that the the membership and the politicians within the party are younger, m- moving forward to revitalize the party. Now he, you know, it's it's been a, a very tough slog to try and make the party more appealing to younger voters, but he he's done things. For example. Uh, in the city and county council races in last year's local elections, he shifted the weighting of the primary polling, uh, the primary polling results so that younger members of the KMT would be weighted higher than older ones. And so he's done quite a bit, actually, to try and bring younger members into the party, younger politicians into the party, and try and, you know, to revitalize the party going forward. And he seems very, very focused on this. He did not put himself forward on the party list uh, legislative vote. He did not uh, 
put himself into the presidential vote, which he did in 2015. And so I think that he has a fairly strong case for, you know, considering the wins in, tw- in, in the 20. 20- in the last uh, 2022 local elections and with the legislative elections this time, that he's actually delivered for the party. So I think that's where he's standing, and I think he's got a fairly strong case. So Sean Donovan says that Eric should stay in his position. Uh, well, uh, it's uh, Eric. Eric will, of course, try to make a case for himself. He has to, right? Uh, in because between now and October, he has to be able to convince people that uh, well, he has to win the chairmanship again if he wants to hold on to power. Um, however, there are several things that I'd like to point out. Um, even though in, within the KMT, they don't have that many youth to choose from, and usually it's really similar to in terms of age and everything. Um, most of them are already the scions of KMT positions of power, which is very different from, you know, the DPP, where a lot of young people might actually, their young legislators might actually have different political positions than their own parents. And so I feel like that dichotomy is different. It's not so much as we're going to give the young people power, which the KMT traditionally has not really done so well at. It's more like we're giving the next generation of our scions power. and we want to. So this, these are power shifting, I think, that is happening more so than we're appealing more to the young people. Of course, they would like to, but the TPP has demonstrated that many voters that would vote for the TPP, young voters, would never vote for the KMT, period. Um, another thing that needs to be pointed out is Eric Chu's criticism against him does have some validity. For example, his anti-U.S. position has not made things much easier for him to get uh, support from abroad, right? Uh, and and then in this election, right, Chu made a controversial decision. He bypassed the, uh, the party's presidential primary. So he basically nominated Ho. So essentially, it's technically on paper his direct fault that Ho Yo Yi, well, the outcome of this is directly choose personal decision to nominate, right? So this is not anyone else's fault. Yeah, he, you know that that's something they're going to put him go with the grills for now. But then they're on the other hand, who else did the KMT have that had a great chance either, right? So that's another thing. There was also you know um, the failure to make an alliance with the TPP, uh, which might have resulted in their victory. And that's another thing that he should probably take uh, uh, responsibility for. And then, you know, uh, he also clashed uh, constantly. There was always like, you know, inter-party fighting. They clashed in, in, I think in 2021, uh, they clashed over relations with China. They had publicly heated exchanges. Um, So I, I think that, and then, of course, there was his style. Sometimes they said he was divisive and whatnot. But to be a powerful leader in the KMT, you have to fight against different factions. You have to make decisions. You have to fight for power. So I think I wouldn't blame Chu for doing what he has. As for his argument about the legislative uh, victory or so forth, yeah, the KMT technically has a majority, but it's by one seat. So it's not like it's been a massive victory where they had a majority and they might grill him for lacking that majority too. Had Chu uh, successfully uh, worked out with the TPP, then they would have had a legislative alliance. Now they don't. Uh, 
So these are things that will really have to be considered. Um, do I think uh, Eric will resign? Mm, we'll see. But I think there's a strong case to be made that he might be able to make sure that he keeps this all the way until October. And before we go this week, well, it's there. the legislature has been finalised. Of course, the KMT won 52 seats, the DBP took 51 seats, the TPP grabbed eight seats, while two remaining seats went to independent candidates, both of whom are aligned with the KMT. Now, as we said earlier on this show, the new lawmakers will be sworn in on February the 1st. And the first piece of business will, of course, be to elect a new legislative speaker. Now... The TPP has said it's going to vet and thoroughly look into the anyone who wants to beget this job and they're going to review all the ways that they could, well, introduce reform to the way the legislative UN is run. Now, current Speaker Yoshi Quinn of the DPP could keep his job, but on Thursday of this week, one Mr Hang Yu of the KMT announced that he's going to seek the post of legislative speaker, and he indicated a willing list to accept a candidate from the TPP as his deputy. Now, taking to Facebook to say all this, Han said he was running to return the legislature to its rightful role of overseeing and balancing the other branches of government, in contrast to the rubber stamp it had become over the past eight years under DPP control. Now, according to Han, he'll be running with KMT lawmaker Johnny Jung as his deputy. But, according to Han, Jung is ready to bow out in favour of a Taiwan People's Party candidate if that party is willing to join forces. And he didn't stop there, because he went on to say that he believes that by running a joint speakership ticket, the KMT and the TPP could unite the opposition and give the DPP a taste of the fury of 60% of the public and he went on to say that that would teach the DPP humility and force them to change. So Donovan big things coming up, who's going to be the next legislative speaker? Will it be Hang War Yu? Will it be Yoshi Quinn? Or will it be somebody else? No, that, that's the million dollar question right now. I mean, we really don't know. Um, because the thing is, is that the DPP, they've said, you know, they, they want an inclusive new government. This is the, you know, William Lai coming in with his, his new cabinet. So, if the, the TPP wants power, their best route is to align with the DPP, and they get, you know, from their perspective, they get a cabinet position, and, you know, then they support a DPP uh, speaker in the legislature. That would be their the best route to get actual power. On the other hand, the TPP views itself as being a check uh, and balance on uh, uh, executive branch overreach, which means that they would then they ha- you know it, then it would be in their self interest to align with the KMT against the DPP. So you know they may choose that route. Now there's another possibility. They may actually try a, try and go and actually nominate their own uh, legislative speaker, knowing that the because the KMT and the DPP neither have a majority, they can't win on their own. They may try and outmuscle the other two parties and try and get their own speaker in. So you know. How this is going to play out is going to be very fascinating, and it's going to say a lot about how you know how the TPP 
is actually thinking and operating. You know, for example, um, Vivian Huang the other day said that the party was going to uh, vote as a caucus uh, for whoever is going to be the speaker. Can you imagine Huang Guochang voting for Han Guoyu as the legislative speaker? Obviously, there's some seriously serious ideological differences between the two. But according to Vivian Huang, the TPP will be voting as a united bloc. So, you know, there's also internal divisions within the TPP that also need to be taken uh, taken account of. So, you know, how this is going to play out is going to be very fascinating and very illuminating, frankly. But I don't think that we have any answers at this point. And while it's going to be fascinating, Sean, it could also be a rather lengthy process. I believe it will be. I mean, the longer it is, the better the TPP looks. It depends. I mean, anything can happen, like Donovan said. But uh, I think the TPP has made a strong start in, I think, appeasing its supporters by uh, saying, because, I mean, that's probably why they were voted for in the first place, you know, to sort of equalize and to put some checks on the way the state is going. Um, A lot of its voters, uh, particularly, were more concerned about things like the economy and what have you, um, or in housing and what have you, and they wanted a party to come out to you know speak for them, but that wasn't the KMT. So the DPP coming out and immediately saying that okay, we need a voice, we need it is directly appealing to its voters as well. Granted, I mean always there's always pageantry, and what I mean by pageantry is that often touted figure now right now saying like, well, lie only one you know sixty percent didn't vote for him. Okay, I, I that's just another you know purposely bad math. Why? Because only about seventy one point eighty six percent of the eligible voters or the voting populace actually voted. So that means what, you know, if it's two thirds of that, what is that like 43%, you know, of the eligible voters actually didn't vote for, you know, when you talk about the math, it doesn't make sense, right? Like that's just bad math being pushed around. But the real purpose is they want the populace to see that, okay, look, um, there's reasons why, you know, the DPP should not have be the new legislative speaker. Current uh, legislative speaker, Yushi Kun, should not continue. And, of course, that's who the DPP is nominating. And then, at the same time, they're going to argue for a new figure. Will it be Han Goyu? You know, I'm with Donovan here. I don't think... I really have a hard time believing the TPP will support Han Goyu. Um, it just, it's just wild. Uh, you know, uh, that would be chaotic. It would lead to a very interesting next few years. Uh, <laughs> But uh, yeah, I just uh, we'll we'll see, and I think more viable figures will come out in the next few days, and yeah, it's going to be exciting. And that's where we have to leave it here this week on Taiwan This Week, and I've been joined in the studio today by Sean Su. It's great to be back, and from Taichung by Donovan Smith. And great to be back as well. And thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcast on your favorite podcast apps, where you can get all access to our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 9 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.